Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the music and legacy of a band who changed popular culture forever as we debate the history of the Beatles. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the architecture and symbolism of Stormont. We talked to Joe Connell about partition, the treaty, and the 1922 constitution. And we found out how history can help us to rethink leadership. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies somebody calls you you answer quite slowly a girl with kaleidoscope Formed in Liverpool in 1960, the Beatles rose to fame with a string of hit songs and pioneering studio albums as they became one of the greatest and most influential music groups in history. Comprising from 1962, the quartet of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, the Beatles were noted for their innovative songwriting and cultural impact until their acrimonious breakup in 1970. The best-selling music artists of all time, the Beatles left a remarkable musical and cultural legacy and they continue to inspire people around the world. And so in tonight's show, we want to explore the rise, fall and legacy of the Beatles. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Holly Tesler is the programme leader of the Masters in Beatles Music Industry and Heritage at the University of Liverpool and the founding co-editor of the Journal of Beatles Studies published by Liverpool University Press. And she's an expert on the music and legacy of the Beatles. Rogue Best is the owner and curator of the collection at the Liverpool Beatles Museum on Matthew Street. He's the brother of the former Beatle Pete Best. His father was Neil Aspinall, the CEO of the Beatles company Apple Corps, and his mother Mona Best opened the Casbah Coffee Club where the Beatles first performed. Terry Coleman Black is a Beatles superfan. She was at the Beatles Dublin gig in 1963 and her personal collection of Beatles memorabilia is on display at the Rock and Roll Museum in Temple Bar. Kevin McManus is the head of UNESCO City of Music at Culture Liverpool in Liverpool and is part of the Beatles Legacy Group. Well, you are all very welcome. And Holly, I might begin with you and a broad big question about why are the Beatles still so influential, still so iconic, still so revered? Oh, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think if you ask 100 different people, you'd get 100 different answers. I mean, I think ultimately it's the music that people really connect with it. And it seems to go from generation to generation that there is just a universal message there that folks connect with. I also think that with the advent of social media, 
the story of the Beatles also draws younger people in especially. I mean, with the news, they're going to make those four Beatles uh, biopics. It just goes to show you that um, each generation wants to hear the story of the Beatles. So it's just so improbable that it could happen the way it did. If it were a Hollywood movie, you wouldn't believe that four regular people from Liverpool could become the global icons they became. In times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. people really just become emotionally attached to their music. It's the kind of thing that grows as people mature. So it might be their favorite music as teenagers, but then there's as their life progresses, each of the songs and the lyrics have new meanings. So when somebody gets married, the music of the Beatles might be their wedding song, or it might be a favorite song that's played with a child or a grandchild. So it's music that seems to be aging with people uh, throughout the generation. And there are different phases of the Beatles' music. So some people prefer the earlier stuff. Some people prefer the middle period. Some people prefer the later, more experimental stuff. And it is this incredible, like, 10-year period. Yes, absolutely. People do have favourite periods and favourite eras and favourite albums. And some are George fans, some are Paul fans. And it's, again, how people, especially now with social media and streaming, People are coming to individual songs much more than they consume albums. So it's really giving some of the the less known recordings a lot more attention. Kevin, it's also very much a Liverpool story, isn't it? And why is it that Liverpool has produced so many great musicians and artists? Oh, have you got several hours? Because I could probably talk to you for days about that. But um, I I think it's, I mean, I know the course of Holly Leeds on a lot of, Part of that is putting the Beatles in context of of where they came from and how Liverpool shaped them as individuals and shaped the music. And I think that that goes on to everything. I think it's partly due to the Irishness, partly due to the fact that we're Port City and you need entertainment, you know, and people just music was a way of getting away from struggles. So music was a way of celebrating when people when sailors got into town. So I think it's. Music is just a bit large through the whole of Liverpool life, I think. And, you know, you see it, um, to, to use a non-Beatles reference, you saw it like last year with the Eurovision Song Contest when it came to Liverpool. And it was like no other Eurovision Song Contest before because like Liverpool is music and it was just the whole city embraced the whole the, the whole contest. And I think the rest of the world got to see that how much Liverpool values music and, and everything it does. So, yeah, I think it's just part of our... It's, it, you know, it's, it's in the water, it's in the air, it just seeps through the ground. Music, music's just there and it's, I've worked with music, musicians over and talked to musicians over the last 40 years and it's just there and, and you know, whoever you talk to, whatever form of music, they do always reference the Beatles um, and now now in a very, I think when I was a young punk and stuff, it was kind of, Beatles and everything else was dismissed but since that period, I think 
everyone talks with the Beatles with great affection and, and an understanding of of how incredibly important culturally, musically, they were and uh, for, you know, for, and still are. Rogue, we could probably do 20, 30, 40 hours of material on the Beatles. So we won't go back in time to the 50s and the early incarnations and the, the Quarrymen and so on. Let's go to 1960 when they became the Beatles. And Holly there mentioned that uh, they're going to make these four biopics of John, Paul, Ringo and George directed by Sam Mendes and there'll be these interconnected movies. But I think what a lot of our listeners may not fully realise is that when the Beatles were founded in 1960 and all the way up to 1962 the drummer wasn't Ringo Starr the drummer was your brother Pete Best yeah that's correct um they were playing the the Casbah my mother's club uh, John Paul George and a guy Ken Brown opened the club for my mother in 1959 29th of August 1959 she opened the first rock and roll club in Liverpool the Casbah uh, the original group let her down, uh, but two of the members came to her. That was George and uh, Ken Brown, and said they could form another group in time, uh, which they did. Uh, they found another two members to put together a, another version of the Quarrymen, and the other two members were John mm-hmm. and Paul. And, of course, they met Pete there. They brought Stuart Sutcliffe along with them to the Casbah. And it was being at the Casbah and knowing each other as friends that sort of put the foundations there for the original lineup of the Beatles, or the Silver Beatles, as they were, which, of course, was John, Paul, George, Stuart Sutcliffe and Peace. And it was from... Uh, the Casbah that they made, you know, their maiden voyage out to to Hamburg as that five piece, leaving for Hamburg as the Silver Beatles, but they dropped the the silver from the name whilst they were in Hamburg. So the original lineup of the group did include Peace on drums. And what happened then? Because he was involved, I think he was involved in something like a thousand concerts, so many recordings of tracks. And then, just as they're on the brink of this enormous success in 1962, he's replaced by Ringo Starr. Well, there's there's many theories floating around. You know, they say that there could be jealousies within the group due to Pete's popularity. Um, they say that his drumming wasn't good enough. They say that um, he was too quiet. He wasn't like the others. But my own personal view on it was they were a very young band they get to London, they get to record in Abbey Road, and at that time in the music industry, uh, drummers being replaced or different members of the band being replaced by a session musician because they weren't studio savvy yet was was the norm. Uh, but because Brian Epstein had touted them around London so long trying to get a recording deal, I think it is only my theory and taking nothing away from Ringo. Um, I think when they suggested a session drummer uh, to initially play, I think the boys panicked, not understanding that side of the industry. I think they panicked. I think they thought they were going to uh, miss their what was their, really their last shot at getting a recording deal and brought Ringo in. And as history showed, it made absolutely no difference because Ringo didn't get to play on the first record either. They still brought in a session drummer. It was done. Pete was out. Ringo was in. Would it have made any difference to their success if Pete had stayed? I don't believe so, but that's taking nothing away from Ringo. He was the man that got the job at that time and got the job done and um, was part of what became you know, the Fab Four, as we know and Holly, you could broaden the, the numbers of those who played such a crucial role to include Brian Epstein, who, who Rogue mentioned there, George Martin, the producer, that there were some brilliant people around them who contributed to that success. Absolutely. And one of the things that people tend to forget about the Beatles is they get caught up in this narrative of exceptionalism that they were just meant to be. And that really does them a tremendous disservice. Because apart from just the innate talent they had, they were also very ambitious, very smart, and exceedingly hardworking. And this is very true, especially when they were just beginning and starting out, that they would be sponges. Uh, Paul McCartney, in particular, in recent years, has been talking about how they would always try to get up the next rung of a ladder. So they would always 
try to get themselves around people who were just a little bit more successful, a little bit further down the track than they were, and then say, okay, how did you do this? How do you, how do you learn how to play this chord? Or how did you get into a recording studio? And they would just absorb that information. And ultimately, it was their hard work and their relentless desire to just keep succeeding that accompanied with the talent they had for performing and writing songs and all of their charisma that really helped them become established amongst all those other Mersey Beat bands of which there were at least scores and scores, if not a couple of hundred other bands in Liverpool at that time. Terry, their first single was Love Me Do and uh, their third single from Me To You I think was their first number one but it was their fourth single She Loves You that I think was this massive, enormous success. She loves you, yeah. Almost from that moment on, Beatlemania began to surge and they really did become these pop icons, cultural icons and swept Britain, swept Ireland, swept the world. They did indeed. I mean, I started following them in 62, believe it or not. I was like a teenage girl. So they sort of burst into my world and I just couldn't believe them. But um, yeah, I mean, it just, it, it escalated so quickly. I remember in 1962, I had pictures of them on my wall and had to write the names underneath them so I'd know who was who. But uh, it all, from there on, it kicked off hugely. So by the time they reached Dublin in 63, it was massive. Beatlemania was underway big time. So was it difficult to get a ticket? I think they did two performances in Dublin on the same night. You were there at the first of the concerts. Was it difficult to get a ticket? I'll tell you, we had a great mammy who queued up because the tickets went on sale and those days you had to queue up to get them. They were playing in the Adelphi Cinema, which was a very small gig. So we were in school, so she headed down onto that queue and got the tickets for myself and my brother. And my dad said, you can go with your brother, you're not going with anybody else, and you're wearing your school uniform. (laughs) And did your brother love them as well? Oh, absolutely. You see, we came from a very musical family, so my earliest recollection is listening to very old, like Elvis records, etc. So, yeah, we were very musical. And what was it exactly? Was it the music? Was it their look, the haircuts? Was it their personality? Because they always came across so droll and funny in interviews and they just seemed different and not the run of the mill. Like, I, what, what was, the, I don't know, I, what's kind of like the key to their magic? Okay, well, you have to go back to that actually time when things were quite sedate, especially here in Ireland. I mean, we, it was quite restricted. Life wasn't great. It was okay. And we had had all the 50s, like the crooners, the... And when Elvis burst on the scene, that was a starting point of a change. But this was four of them. It was like, four, for me, it was like four Elvises. They were, everything about them was attractive. I mean, again, I was, I said, I was a 14-year-old girl. But everything about them, the music was different, the way they approached things, their zany humour, the way they dressed, the wonderful haircuts. That was just, everything about them was just different. So it was like a magnet. I said, yeah, I'll have this. Kevin, what's interesting as well is they didn't just conquer Britain and Ireland. They also conquered the United States. And that's something that very few bands then or since have been able to manage. Yeah, if you look back through rock history, there's yeah, lots, lots of people, lots of great British bands. People thought they would break America. And, and you know, if you look back, there's hardly any who did. So the Beatles were the old trailblazers. And I think it was partly just through what people already talked about. I mean, it does always come back to the music. That catalogue of songs they put together in, in that short space of time is amazing and you know, still sounds stunning now and stands up to everything. So I think that, above all, as Holly said, you know, they work really hard and their, their songs are just works of genius. And So I think it's based on that, but then everything else that, you know, you've just talked about, their persona was just made fair. You know, they were, they were great in interviews. They looked great. It was... 
if you were trying to manufacture something, uh, it would it would kind of be them. But then, if you manufactured it, it becomes Swiss, and they were their cheekiness and or like their their just their normal characters and that the the kind of likability and the cheekiness and the uh, the, the humour just just trans just went across the world. Really, didn't it? it was it was a perfect package and. Luckily, the Americans were ready for it. And, and I mean, I watched eight days a week again recently, and it's that hysteria when they arrived and everything, and, uh, and, and throughout is, is, is like that, that was amazing at a time when there wasn't social media. So people were finding out about them just through hearing the records on the radio or, uh, or, or seeing the occasion when, when they did Ed Sullivan. So generate that level of, of popularity that quickly when, you know, in a, in a different age of media is, again, is even more stunning. And Kevin, it gives you a wonderful insight into what life was like and the world was like in the 1960s because the Beatles were symbols of rebellion and uh, adored by young people and kind of frowned on and looked down on by an older generation. But but actually, when you look at them now, they are very much, they would look like symbols of respectability with their nice clothes and, you know, polite and well-mannered. And, you know, that it shows that what was what would be seen as maybe uh, uh, polite and good-natured now was seen as this dangerous, threatening resistance back then. It's, yeah, I think that's the story of rock and roll. I think everyone, I think uh, when Bill Haley and was started, I think they thought it was going to generate riots and stuff. So I think that's, that's kind of whenever there's something new, people uh, react to it like that way, but the establishment reacts that way. But I think, I, I again, just you mentioned about... Um, the the norms at the time and how like restrained things were in the UK and Ireland and um, I've been lucky enough to get to know Frida Kelly who was work for Brian Epstein and headed up the fan club and stuff as well and I've seen some of the fan club fan club letters one of which is on display in the British Music Experience and it's from it's from a, a young woman who writes to the fan club saying she's sorry she's got to give up her membership because she's married and her husband won't won't let her stay in the fan club. And that's that's where society was in the in the early sixties. So they were yeah they were breaking through all all that sort of those social norms at the time. Rogue famously, a lot of the songs are credited to Lennon McCartney, and you know George did some, Ringo did some, but it's that partnership between Paul McCartney and John Lennon which I think really captured the imagination of so many. How much do we know about how they went about writing songs? Well, I think like any songwriter, you know, it, it, and Paul's talked about this, so has George, um, uh, J- uh, John on, um, God bless him, is not with us anymore. Neither is George, come to think of it. But, you know, it could start with a melody, it could start with a lyric. I think what was stunning with regards to the Beatles songwriting is that for a band to have a great songwriter in it, well, that's the difference between success and no success for the Beatles to have three great songwriters within the band. Well, that's just unprecedented. You still don't hear of that even to this day, you know, and the quality of the songs that they were putting out there, obviously we're here 60 years later, still talking about those songs again. They've just recently had a number one with now and then, um, the songs have stood the test of time. And for many people, their songs have been, you know, the Beatles were the soundtrack to many people's lives. And Holly, when you look at how the songs were constructed, some were very much John songs, some were very much Paul songs. In the early years, did you see them maybe doing a little bit of tweaking with it? And did they become more separate as 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 time went on and maybe tensions perhaps grew in the band? Oh, I think there's a lot of lacking of confidence at the very beginning. I think John and Paul worked closely together just because they were still learning how to play guitars and learning the chords and learning the progressions and modulations of what was rock and roll music in the 1950s and even into the early 1960s. So as their confidence grew, as they learned their craft and they had hit after hit after hit, they didn't need each other to sort of do a sense check. Is this right? Does this sound okay? What about these lyrics? And then I think that cooperation began to turn to competition a little bit that if uh, Paul would write a really good song, John might come in and say, okay, well, you could change this bit of it. But at the same time, in the back of his mind, John would say, oh, well, Paul's written this really excellent song like yesterday. What can I do? 
that might top that. And of course, as Rogue was saying, George is by no means a poor songwriter at all. And the fact that he was marginalized through so much of the Beatles' career, and then when they finally do break up, he releases All Things Must Pass, which is like a volcano eruption of all of these songs he had pent up because he was only allowed maybe one or at best two tracks on an album. So I do think it was just an evolution in the songwriting process that they got, as they got clearer and sharper and more confident, they became more experimental and much more competitive amongst themselves and with other songwriters, people like Brian from the Beach Boys. So they could all just keep one-upping each other to release the best songs they could. Rogue, one of my favourite songs is A Day in the Life from uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So that's 1967. But there you see John and Paul, the way it interacts so well, where John has the opening and the end. Paul has the middle section, which was a different song that he'd been working on. And the way they're able to merge them and bring them together. And uh, George and Ringo contributed parts as well, that it just created a, a really haunting, beautiful, exceptional track. It is an unbelievable track from a from a unbelievable album, you know, um, the first concept album in the world. But the fact that you know, as you as you mentioned, uh, Patrick, that you know, it's it's a Paul song that he can't quite finish. It's a John song. John had a number that he can't quite finish, and they and they meld them. They meld the two together to cre- create this beautiful track and that goes back to what we were saying previously about their their skills as songwriters george unfortunately which we touched on was pushed out to the to the outside but i think that was more to do with lennon mccartney where they were having the hits maybe somewhere within the industry it's like, well, we don't really want to take a chance on George. Let, let him have a track or two. It's you two that are writing these big hit numbers, which must have been really frustrating for George. Well, as we know now, it was frustrating for George. Um, all Things Must Pass. Wow, what an album. You know, to think he could have been contributing that sort of material all the way through would have been amazing. But no, going back to A Day in the Life, two separate songs melded together to create this Amazing track. Well, tonight we are talking about the music and the impact of the iconic band, The Beatles. We'll take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be exploring further the success of The Beatles and some of these landmark albums. So stay with us here on News Talk. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we are talking about the music and the cultural legacy 
of the Beatles. I'm delighted to be joined by such a brilliant panel. Dr. Holly Tesler, the Programme Leader of the Masters in Beatles Music Industry and Heritage at the University of Liverpool. Rogue Best, the owner and creator of the Liverpool Beatles Museum. Terry Coleman-Black, a Beatles superfan. And Kevin McManus, the head of UNESCO City of Music at Culture Liverpool in Liverpool. Rogue, can we talk about the transition then in the 1960s where they seem to move from a band that was touring around the world to a band that was focused more on on producing these albums and the music really seems to to change and evolve really quite considerably like the the band that's producing the album Revolver and then the band we, the, the album we talked about Sgt Pepper and then you know the the untitled White album this is substantially different to the music of the early days Oh, it's, it's it's poles apart. If you look at that 10-year period, you know, from the beginning to the end of the Beatles, it could be two different, well, at many different phases during that 10-year career. It could be different groups. They've moved on. The sound has changed so drastically. They were sponges. They were listening to everything that was going on at the time. They were keeping on top of what was happening around them. They were listening to classical music. What they were listening to was quite eclectic, just soaking that all up. And, of course, in the background there, you've got George Martin, who's come from a totally different musical education to the lads, who is basically rock and roll, pubs, clubs, you know, learning their trade out in Hamburg with those eight hours a night shows. And then you've got George Martin with this whole uh, classical background, orchestrations. He's there. He's influencing them. Uh, And I think that contributes to why there was such big jumps in their sound and why they, they were basically leading the field. Everyone at that time was waiting to see what the next Beatle album was going to be because during that period of their career, you really didn't know what to expect. What were they going to do next? They were very much leading the way. And Holly, earlier, just a little bit before that, they were also bona fide movie stars as well with uh, something like A Hard Day's Night that it showed their humour, it showed, I suppose, the the level of adulation, but it was also kind of maybe an early forerunner of these uh, programmes and sitcoms you see now where where people play a, a thinly fictionalised version of themselves, you know, even Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. Here you saw the Fab Four playing kind of slightly fictionalised version of themselves. Indeed, they did. And I think in a lot of ways, not only was it um, a forerunner to shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, it was also, I think, an ancient ancestor of what we now call reality shows, where as of the 1960s, cameras couldn't just follow the Beatles around day in, day out while they did their daily routine. This uh, especially felt like a hard day's night, gave fans as close as they could possibly get at the time in the period a sense of how the Beatles lived their lives at the height of Beatlemania. And you can't help when you watch that film to just feel energized. And it's a feel-good film because it's just so much energy and enthusiasm from both the Beatles themselves, but their fans, who are, of course, will recognize themselves in the fans that are shown in the films themselves as just being so enthusiastic and there was just so much energy. And historically, as we look back on it, A Hard Day's Night really does capture that kind of excitement that was happening that I think younger people in later generations really can't grasp until they see it on screen themselves. And Kevin, there were the occasional uh, controversy as well, perhaps uh, caused by a comment that one of them might have made about, I think John said, about Christianity would go and uh, the comment about that they were bigger than Jesus. There was the, the, these backlashes as well when they offended different groups who, who didn't like what this what this band was saying. Uh, yeah, but again, I think they, again, at a time when there was less media management around, I think they... I think they they managed those things well again because they were all they were all I think they they were all genuine and, and real weren't they? It's, they, they? I think they just dealt with them in, in without any proper media training or anything. They just they were honest and and, and dealt with it. I think that always come across. And do you know what? A bit of a bit of controversy and a bit of uh, you know a bit of news never never harms anyone. So I think it all added to the to the myth, didn't it? And it's it's uh, yeah, it's just part it's part of the. Part of that story, you know, the the um, 
the footage of, of people burning Beatles records and stuff after Lennon's comments and stuff. You know, again, it's it's a, it's it's part of that story. But I think they, you know, they they did loads of you know great stuff like which didn't you know, they refused to play in segregated venues in the states, didn't they? You know, they didn't make a big song and dance song. They just said we're not gonna. We're not going to do that because, and you know, again, that was so they, 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 I think they made statements up throughout their career and, and made changes, and that's partly why they're so important. That you know, the cultural importance, the physical importance, but some of them caught the headlines like the um, the Lennon one about being bigger than Jesus, and others they just they just did, and and uh, because they knew it was the right thing to do. Rogue, they set up their own business venture, Apple Corps, and your father, Neil Aspinall, was the, the chief executive of that. And I just wonder uh, what it was like. Were the Beatles part of your life growing up? I know you loved the music and you had all of these items of memorabilia uh, from the Casbah Coffee Club and so on. But would you have been familiar with the characters of John and Paul and George and Ringo? Yeah, they were uh, not an everyday thing because at that point uh, they were in London and my father was in London. But uh, no, I grew up seeing the lads all the time. I, I was Abbey Road Studios. I remember getting a clip round the back of the head for banging away on kettle drums and John had walked in and had a hangover. So uh, he wasn't very keen on this uh, kid banging away on the kettle drums when his head was banging. Um, and so, yeah, I did grow up seeing the lads all the time. Uh, when Paul's touring, there's all always hey do you want to come to the show here's some backstage passes had some fantastic times as at friar park george's home which is wow that place is just amazing it's just amazing i have such great memories of there so no they've been part of uh part of my life's tapestry and Rogue, I can well believe and well understand that they that they loved each other. I've seen interviews where Paul gets so emotional where he's thinking about John and playing a piece of music by John. And like clearly there was that wonderful bond between them. So there was deep love. But again, you spend that much time with anyone working together, living together. You're going to get on each other's nerves. And I wonder, by the end, did they like each other? Hey, who really knows what was going on in that camp towards the end? But we knew that there was a tension there. Um, And I agree, if you're living in each other's pockets, and they were, they were living in each other's pockets 24-7. I'm surprised they were able to do it as long as they as long as long they did. There were tensions at the end. I'm sure they were driving each other mad. But I think even though when they all walked away from it, when the band, band split up, they were still tied together because of their business concerns through Apple. And yeah, there was frosty moments. Uh, but isn't there frosty moments in any relationship? But ultimately... Did those lads all love each other? Yeah, they did. I think they most definitely did. Absolutely. And and Terry, did you change as the band changed when these new albums came out, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and so on? Did you go out and buy them? And did you, did you love each new incarnation of the band? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to look at it as a decade. The 60s was a decade and we all know anybody who's looked back at it it was iconic time to live. I mean, I'm very privileged to have lived through it. So each album that developed was different was so exciting. I can remember actually queuing up every time an album was going to be released. I remember queuing up and there was a record store here in Dublin who they were very kind. They used to give them to us the day before they were released because they knew we were so into it. If you look at the progression of the music, it also ties in with the history of the time. I mean, everything was evolving. The whole social order was changing. People were freer. You hear about the sort of hippies, the whole thing. That tied in directly with what they were doing. They were progressing. So were we. Like, we, I went from, as I said, a 14-year-old screaming girl, seeing them, to just evolving through the 60s and what that meant and what that still means to me. And I think Holly said earlier about it's part of your fabric. It's part of my fabric and has travelled with me through my family and everybody that knows me. So, yeah, I mean, I loved the changes. Um, Holly, I just want to go back to the composition of the songs again because uh, Peter Jackson did that wonderful documentary series uh, about the Beatles and uh, all the hours of footage that he went back as they were making, I think it was the Let It Be album. But there was there was a wonderful uh, moment there where it showed 
Paul just working on a piece of music and you almost see, you see there the spark of inspiration, the spark of genius as it, it becomes Get Back and it becomes a song created virtually out of nothing. It does indeed. And of course, anybody who's ever been an aspiring songwriter looks to people like Paul McCartney, one of the most successful pop music songwriters in the world, and say, how does he do it? And to see it captured on film, to just go from noodling around on a bass to writing one of of the songs that would become one of the Beatles' greatest hits, it's absolutely fascinating to watch the creative process with someone who was born to write music. It's it, it really is just um, something to behold. And it really, even people who were passive Beatles fans and were watching the documentary not as Beatles fans per se, but because it was such a big viewing and streaming moment that I think it really helped to underscore to people who weren't the world's biggest Beatles fans before just how exceptional Paul McCartney was and, and all of them were in taking just the tiniest bit of uh, inspiration and turning it into something that's commercial. You know, that's the really tricky part about writing commercially successful pop songs. It's a whole lot easier to write a 14-minute saga that pours your heart out, but you have to be able to be successful in pop music to, to narrow it down to three and a half, four minutes and have a chorus and a hook and a bridge. And that's the much tougher part. And to see Paul do it in front of our very eyes is nothing short of magical. Holly, for so long, the villain in the story of the breakup was Yoko Ono. And as an historian, I've always thought that's probably been too simplistic, probably not right, probably a little bit sexist as well, that you're just blaming the woman who comes in and is disrupting the relationships because life is much more complex than that and relationships are much more complex. But for so long, she was shown as or portrayed as the woman who broke up the Beatles. Indeed, she was. And one of the really great things about the Get Back documentary is that not only is Yoko Ono recast in a much more favorable light, it shows the Beatles as people who are not just in this bubble of being the Beatles, but as partners and husbands and fathers. And throughout the whole of that documentary, you see people coming and going, their wives and partners and girlfriends and children and Mike McCartney comes in and out, and we see all sorts of cameos from famous people. You almost wonder, how did they ever get anything done with all these people coming in and out of the studios at all times? It really humanizes them in a way, and it humanizes Yoko Ono. And it just, again, for contemporary audiences, retells the story and makes the Beatles much more relatable to folks growing up in the 21st century who see the Beatles as being so far ahead of their time as being people who were really accommodating to their partners and wives and girlfriends and children. And they didn't just exist in a bubble of these four exceptional musicians, but that they had lives and they become much more human through the process. We see them joking around and, you know, just having lunch with their families and just hanging out. And that's what people are really interested in seeing. We can always listen to the music and make those sort of judgments and evaluations for ourselves. But seeing that sort of behind-the-scenes magic as human beings what made it so fascinating to watch. And Rogue, as Holly says there, they were so innovative. They were such uh, uh, trailblazers. And one of the things they did, which was really uh, very different to what other bands did, was that rooftop concert in, in January 1969 on the rooftop of their Apple Corps headquarters in London, where they just uh, took to the roof and started playing some songs and a, and a huge crowd gathered and... It's been uh, uh, copied in The Simpsons. It's been, uh, it's, it became one of these great iconic performances and it captured the imagination in the way that so many of their actions did. I think with the Apple Rooftop concert, and that's touched on in um, Let It Be, 
I think the Apple rooftop concert was an answer to frustrations of, you know, we've got to do something. And you see within that uh, documentary that no one can, <laughs> no one can agree on what they're going to do as this concert. And it just, in the end, it's basically like, should we just go and set up on the roof and play? You know, I don't think they had any idea that it was going to become this iconic moment in, in Beatles history. You know, I don't, I think that was a million miles for, away from their thoughts at that point. Very Beatles, you know, to do something again, something someone else hadn't done again, being the trailblazers, just thinking outside the box. They were intelligent guys. So you got this hub of creativity where one of the things within it is think outside the box. So the Apple rooftop gig, yeah, it's iconic. Did they plan it to be that way? No, I just think they thought, you know, we've done all this work. We may as well do something. We can't agree on where to play. Let's just go and set up on the roof. And the rest is history. Well, we're going to take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the breakup in 1970s and the wider impact and cultural legacy of the Beatles. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back as we look at the music and legacy of the Beatles. I'm rejoined by Dr. Holly Tesler, Rogue Best, Terry Coleman-Black and Kevin McManus. Kevin, can we talk very briefly about the breakup then in 1970? Had they just run out of road? Uh, was it just a, a, that they needed a break from each other and just to recharge and, and try something different? I think it was a bit of everything that you that we you've just said really you think it's um these you know we've, we've talked earlier in this about like the, there's the obviously the two famous songwriters in in Paul and John and then George was struggling to get his songs heard and all those and then the tension to everything else going on uh you know Yoko coming the, the Yoko bit which people sometimes uh overstate I think and and it's just Bands, bands have sometimes have a natural lifespan. I've worked with bands in different capacities for forty years, and I don't know any any band where those tensions aren't there. You know, at some point or other, and then that's an awful lot of pressure over a long time, and then still trying to be creative. And and yeah, bands bands tend to start to like dislike each other over petty stuff, fall out, and members get sacked, members leave, and I think the Beatles different to, to other bands in so many other ways were just in that they were just the same as everyone else you know therefore human beings who who wanted eventually wanted to do their own things or just couldn't couldn't bear to be in the same room with other individuals at certain times and that probably changed some 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 weeks probably John hated Paul some weeks he loved he loved them and then you know we'd hate someone else it's it was that's just the that's just the dynamic of of groups of people, and particularly in, in bands, and particularly when it's being emphasised as much as with, as with the Beatles, because they were the biggest bands in the world. I I always look at it on how lucky we are to have that all those great records that they that they put together in in that short space of time. So yeah, it was sad that they broke up. You know, it's yeah, what they left us is incredible, isn't it? And we should be grateful for that. And Holly, they've had an incredible impact and cultural legacy in the way they've influenced so many, not just musicians, but all kinds of artists, thinkers, and even just, you know, us, the public, in the way their music has, someone said earlier, the soundtrack of our lives, but very much the soundtrack for so many people's lives in the decades since. That's quite true. And we forget that through the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, the Beatles themselves were very quiet. They decided to just let their legacy speak for itself. And in that period, what we begin to see are secondary references to the Beatles. So John Hughes, the filmmaker, he would always work a Beatles reference into films like Sixteen Candles or Pretty in Pink. There would always be a Beatles reference. And we started to see shows like The Wonder Years that would have references to the 1960s and the Beatles in them. So what we begin to see is that as culture 
started to reflect on the 1960s and what was important and how that decade and generation was defined, the Beatles were always at the heart of it. And the people who were doing the creating, the directors and the writers and the producers and the authors, would always reflect on how the Beatles influenced their lives. And that's something I get even today. People get in touch from around the world, as I'm sure everybody else on the panel will have experience of, and just say, uh, you know, I'm desperate to come to Liverpool. The Beatles are so important in my lives. There are people who name their children after the Beatles or Beatles songs, or have gotten Beatles tattoos and have really just dedicated so much of their lives to the music of the Beatles that I think it's hard to imagine now a period when they were sort of overlooked or they never really fell out of fashion. But certainly from sort of the 1990s forward, they've sort of become these cultural icons that the world knows and has embraced fully. And I think that no one is ever going to tire of hearing the story and hearing the music because it is so unique and so powerful. Well, thanks to my wonderful panel of experts for bringing the music and the legacy and the story of the Beatles to us tonight. Dr. Holly Tesler, the Programme Leader of the Masters in Beatles Music Industry and Heritage at the University of Liverpool and the founding co-editor of the Journal of Beatles Studies, Rogue Best, the owner and creator of the Liverpool Beatles Museum on Matthew Street in Liverpool. Terry Coleman Black, a Beatles superfan who was at the Beatles gig and whose collection of Beatle memorabilia is on display at the Rock and Roll Museum in Temple Bar and Kevin McManus, the head of UNESCO City of Music at Cultural Liverpool in Liverpool. Well, my thanks to everyone who helped put tonight's show together, my producer Marisa Sullivan, Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we've got more debate and discussion for you, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song. Start to make it better. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid. You were made to go out and get her. The minute you let her under your skin, then you begin to make it better. Have found him.